So as I mentioned before, we are starting a new sermon series. It's called Reframing Your Worldview. And we're going to be talking a little bit about the concept of wisdom today. And so we don't preach from it real often, but the words I'm going to be reading this morning actually come from the Old Testament book of Proverbs. So here are these words from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. My son, pay attention to my words. Bend your ear to my speech. Don't let them slip from your sight. Guard them in your mind. They are life to those who find them and healing for their entire body. More than, you, more than anything you guard, protect your mind, for life flows from it. Have nothing to do with a corrupt mouth. Keep devious lips far from you. Focus your eyes straight ahead. Keep your gaze on what is in front of you. Watch your feet on the way, and all your paths will be secure. Don't deviate a bit to the right or the left. Turn your feet away from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I've said this week, we're beginning this new sermon series. It's called Reframing Your Worldview. And so I thought it might be a really good idea to just kind of start by looking at the question, what exactly do we mean by this word? What do we mean by the word worldview? Well, one of the best definitions I've come across comes from a woman by the name of Dr. Allison Gray. She's a respected philosophy professor at the University of Cambridge, and she defines a worldview this way. A worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations about the world around us, which inform our every thought and action. Okay, so, so every single person, every single person has a worldview, whether they realize it or not. And that worldview impacts their perspective, right? Their, their opinions, their actions with regard to all kinds of things, with regard to maybe ethics, religion, science, social justice, family values, politics, pretty much everything. Everything in our world is impacted by our worldview. And philosophers actually identify anywhere from between 45 to 65, depending on which one in which ones you, you read, fundamentally different worldviews, 45 to 65, even though there's a lot of kind of nuance, a lot of overlap between a lot of those. Now, I'm sure you've heard some of these words before, right? You've heard of things like existentialism, right? Maybe nihilism, relativism, utilitarianism. Those would be words you're familiar with, even if you could go teach a college course on them. You know, you may have heard of those, but there are a lot of others that are also very commonly encountered and held by people in our society today. Things like idealism and materialism, naturalism. All right, now most of the people who hold these kind of worldviews, right, they wouldn't even be able to tell you, right, that this is the kind of worldview I hold. They're just labels they are labels that philosophers have come up with for all the different ways that people try to make sense of and to understand, right, the world around us. And because our worldviews begin to be formed at a very, very, very young age, they become absolutely ingrained in us very deeply. They become second nature to us. We don't kind of sit back and say, well, I'm a fatalist. That, that kind of means I'm a determinist. And, and my reaction to this thing that happened is that I knew it was just inevitable, right? That's how a determinist, a fatalist, would look at pretty much anything that happens. They don't sit back and think that way. It's just how you automatically react. It's your nature. And part of our human nature also makes it very hard for us to believe that anyone 
would look at the world in a different way than we do. Okay, that anyone would look at the world in any other way. It seems absolutely incredible to us when we encounter someone with a radically different worldview. Maybe, maybe we're even shocked that this person actually thinks this is how the world works. Now, I've always been pretty well read. I I read a lot, and I've always believed that I'd been exposed to a lot of different perspectives through what I've read. But the first time that I really encountered a worldview that I would say was radically, radically different from my own, that I would say I was actually shocked to learn about was actually when I took a a course in seminary in Christian ethics. And in that class, we talked about a lot of different worldviews that are out there. And in that class, I came face to face for the first time with what they would label, right? They would call a secular utilitarian moral philosophy. But it was exemplified in this guy by the name of Peter Singer. He's an Australian philosopher. He's actually a professor of bioethics at Princeton. And his underlying kind of foundational worldview is that human beings are absolutely no different from animals. And therefore, human beings are of no greater value or moral significance than animals. Now, at first glance, you might hear that and say, well, that just sounds like, you know, a a position for a really strong stance on animal rights. And maybe you even share that. And Singer definitely shares that. But it's also led him to what are some rather startling statements, at least, again, they're startling to me anyway, insisting, for example, that killing a live infant who is not yet self-aware is less serious, less morally wrong than killing a happy cat who is self-aware. In fact, he says mature animals deserve more legal protection than human infants because they're self-aware and infants are not. And his worldview makes the claim that human beings have no intrinsic dignity or worth of their own because there's nothing in the universe beyond human beings to grant them that kind of worth. Infanticide, killing an infant, he says, is justified. Is justified when a child is born who faces a life of suffering and pain if that death would relieve the burden of the child and bring greater happiness to the rest of the family. Now, as I said, right, when I, when I first encountered this worldview in, in seminary, I, was, I really was. I mean, I was astounded that there are people for whom this is an obvious, straightforward, matter-of-fact way to look at the world. It's obvious to them. And that these people are equally astounded at my worldview that would take such issue with that. Okay, but the truth is, you know, there are a lot of other worldviews that we encounter all the time, that we encounter every day, that are much less inflammatory, maybe, than that, but that are equally at odds with what I would call a Christian worldview. Okay, a few of these. You know, how about the bumper sticker? I know you've seen the bumper sticker, right? Whoever dies with the most toys wins. I know you've seen that before, right? And that's just a very clear nod to a worldview of materialism. Things are important. Or what about this comment? You've probably heard someone say, I've got to look out for number one, right? I've got to look out for number one and do what's right for me. And that's a very clear expression of individualism. Or maybe, I know you know this, I know you know the words of this great philosopher from the 1990s. She's actually a local girl, believe it or not, Sheryl Crow, right? 
If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad, right? Which is just a very much of a praise of hedonism, hedonism. So we've all met people, I know we've all met people who live their lives according to those statements, or at least some of them, and we might even connect. We might even connect with some of those ourselves, even though each one of those has very clear scripture references that teach in opposition to it. Okay, Jesus clearly preaches against materialism, right? He said, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Very straightforward. And he was no individualist either, right? Jesus said, if you try to keep your life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find true life. Even the Old Testament, even the Old Testament rejects hedonism, right? The writer of Ecclesiastes says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, nothing was gained under the sun. Now, kind of standing in opposition to all these kind of worldly worldviews like materialism and individualism and hedonism is what I would call a Christian worldview. Now, the philosophers would actually call my Christian worldview technically a subcategory of classical theism, classical theism. And that's the belief that there is a God who exists outside of and above creation, who's all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-good, right? And unfortunately, right, it's not quite as easy as saying that a Christian worldview just lines up with that, that it's one based on believing in God, okay? It's not quite that easy, but that's what that definition of classical theism might suggest. Because even when we believe in God, what we believe about God right? What we believe about God makes an enormous difference in our worldviews, the opinions we hold, the actions we take. Here's an example. When, when asked to write about the religious ethics of cloning, cloning human beings, a philosopher by the name of Jonathan Cohen wrote this. He wrote, the possibility of cloning human beings challenges Western beliefs about creation and our relationship to God. If we understand God as the creator and creation as a completed act, cloning will be a transgression. If, however, we understand God as the power of creation and creation as a transformative process, we may find a role for human participation, sharing that power as beings created in the image of God. So two very different perspectives on human cloning, even when we believe in God, what we believe about God makes a huge difference in how we're going to choose to act. And I think this is the fundamental purpose of what the writer of Proverbs is getting at in that core verse in the scripture reading today, where he says, more than anything, protect your mind, for life flows from it. Our lives flow directly out of our worldview, and therefore, they flow directly out of our understanding of the nature of God. It matters what we believe because life, our lives flow out of our beliefs. 
But I think that that proverb points us towards another reality as well. I think it points to this. You know, we have to protect our minds because it is so very easy to flip things around and have our worldview determine what we believe about God as opposed to having what we believe about God determining our worldview. And it's vital that we protect our minds because every single one of us in this room, every single one of us is susceptible to this. Every single one of us has had our worldview informed by an infinite number of influences in the world that we are barely even aware of. And I really believe, I truly believe that getting this turned around and letting our worldview determine our understanding of God accounts for the fact that so many different worldviews you'll encounter out there claim to be the Christian worldview. Okay? At their root, the theological differences that have existed in the church for over 2,000 years and that challenge the church today as much as ever, I believe, arise from our attempts to force God to fit into the framework of our own cultural worldviews rather than allowing God to shatter those frames and help us to view the world through an entirely new one of God's making and not of the world's making. Thank you. Even so, right, I will say that, even so, even with this vast sea of denominational differences and differing theological conclusions that exist within Christianity, I believe there is still an overarching Christian worldview that underlies all of them, okay? And and that should, it should unite us. That worldview is the biblical narrative itself. Okay, do you remember that very first definition of a worldview that I put up for us, right? A worldview is a collection of attitudes, values, stories, and expectations about the world which inform our every thought and action. Well, for 2,000 years, Orthodox Christianity has taught people to turn to the values, the stories, the expectations that we find in Scripture to inform our thoughts and our actions. And what we find there is that there are four primary movements within the scriptural narrative that kind of provide the framework, right, for a Christian worldview. And it's these movements, these four movements, are going to be the focus of each of the next four sermons, the remaining sermons in this sermon series. But for now, I just want to give a preview of these next four weeks and kind of talk about what this Christian framework looks like. And the first outside, the first perspective here would be creation, creation. So, even though Christians get all bound up, they do, right, in disagreements about the how and the when of the creation story, the theological core of the doctrine of creation is that God saw everything he made, and indeed, it was very good. All right, that is Genesis 131. Belief in the ultimate goodness of creation is a cornerstone of a Christian worldview, along with the belief that as the peak of God's creative action, humanity has actually been made in the image of God. Now, again, Christians get all wrapped up in that too. We debate the exact meaning of those words. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? But we all understand that they affirm that all creation is not the same. 
right, in contrast to the beliefs of a Peter Singer, like I talked about before, humanity stands apart in a distinct manner from the rest of creation. We are fundamentally different. We are different from the fish, the animals, the birds. But not only is the world good, not only is humanity created in God's image, the story of creation also tells that there's a purposefulness to creation, a purposefulness. We and our world are not a mere chance happening. We and it were created with intent, with purpose, on purpose. Neither we nor the world are simply a random collection of atoms that have no greater significance. No, we were created purposefully by God. And so that's why next week, Pastor David's going to elaborate on this uh, with the sermon that's going to be called, Where Did We Come From? One corner of this Christian worldview. But there's a second movement, right? The second movement in this biblical narrative through which we should be viewing the world is the fall. The fall. So even though the world that God created was good, all we have to do, right? All we have to do is look around to recognize things are not the way they should be, right? Somehow the goodness of creation has been distorted. Human beings often take actions that would defy any indication that they're actually created in the image of a loving God, right? So Christians give a name, right, to the reason for this distortion from how things should be, and that name is sin. And sin is all about alienation. It results in human alienation, first of all, from God. Genesis 3 says about Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, hiding alienation from God. But sin also results in alienation from other human beings. Right? That story goes on to say, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Not my fault, hers, right? Alienation from other humans. But not only that, it's, it's, it's sin results in alienation from nature. The story goes on to say, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. God didn't curse the ground Human sin cursed the very ground. And sin even results in alienation from our best true selves. Alienation from ourselves. Paul writes in Romans, they, referring to all humans, have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. But see, even so, even with all this alienation, the fall does not negate the essential goodness of creation. Rather, what's about is that there are forces within the fabric of a fallen society that work to undermine all the time, are working to undermine the goodness that God gave it. So in two weeks, we're going to be looking at a sermon. It's going to be called, How Did the World Get So Messed Up? And then in three weeks, we're going to look at the question, so what's the solution? And the third movement in our Christian worldview framework, which is redemption. Redemption. God's act of redemption is God's solution to the fall. And this theme of redemption pervades the entire biblical story from the call of Abraham. In the call of Abraham, God promised, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
And it continues through the whole story to the resurrection of Jesus, through which the creation will itself, the creation will itself be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So as a result of God's act of redemption, salvation is another word for that, right? Jesus Christ, believers enter into a process of transformation into the likeness of Christ, a renewal of the expression of the goodness of creation that was distorted in the fall. Through Jesus Christ, God is fixing the problem. And that leads us directly into the fourth and final movement in this framework of a Christian worldview, which I've called consummation, but we could also just call hope. It's the hope of the complete restoration of the goodness of creation. The promise that Christ will come again to reign over a kingdom of God on earth. And it's because of this hope that Christians understand that we are called to live now as examples of citizenship in a coming kingdom of God where justice and peace and righteousness, truthfulness and purity will be fully restored and made complete. So we're going to wrap up this sermon series by looking at the question, how should I live in this world with this Christian worldview? See, folks, being a Christian is to immerse ourselves in the movements of this story, to learn to view the world through its lens. But here's the thing to be aware of. We do that knowing that to the rest of the world, to those with an utterly different worldview, it's going to seem foolish. Foolish. The Apostle Paul writes about this in his letter to the first Corinthians. He writes, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Meaning, they're not here in our church group. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So even though, right, even though this narrative that forms the frame of our worldview, it might look like foolishness to the world. This framework of creation, fall, redemption, and the hope of consummation, right, that is one cohesive story that we believe has been given to us by God so that by immersing ourselves in it, we can learn to share God's worldview, which is the only worldview of any ultimate consequence. Folks, we have to approach our adoption of this worldview with the recognition, right, that when we immerse ourselves in it, it will shatter. Hear that? It will shatter every other framework we have erected from our infancy by which we look at the world. If that has not happened for you, there's a very good chance your worldview is determining your understanding of God rather than the other way around. But here's what I want you to hear as I wrap this up. The worldview that God wants to build in place of the one that God is going to shatter 
when you immerse yourself in it, in the words of Jesus, it will mean eternal life for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.